0: Welcome to Voices of the Land, where we tell a rolling story of land conservation from all angles and perspectives.
1: Here, we explore why the Westerly Land Trust's mission to conserve open space, revitalize culturally significant properties, and provide environmental programs is beneficial to the community and to the environment.
0: Join us on this tremendous journey of wonderment and empathy towards the natural wonders of our world.
1: Hi there, this is Voices of the Land produced by the Westerly Land Trust. I'm your impeccable host, Erica.
0: And I'm Joe. I am excited for today's guest. Rhode Island recently completed the Bird Atlas 2.0, an updated catalog of native and migratory bird species all across the state. The coordinator of this program, Dr. Charles Clarkson, is speaking with us today about his work. I hope we're not a bird in.
1: Wow. <laughs> Some of the sites for the Rhode Island Bird Atlas 2.0 took place right on Westerly Land Trust property, so there are a lot of species to see and enjoy right here in Westerly. What a pheasant experience! <laughs>
0: Thanks for being here. We're excited to have yeah, you sure. on.
1: Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So um, currently, I serve in the role of
2: coordinator for the Rhode Island Bird Atlas, and this is a second iteration of the state bird atlas. The first one was conducted from the years of 1982 to 1987 and it was kind of a cursory glimpse of bird distribution
3: in the state of Rhode Island and it was really only focused on breeding birds. So
2: it was kind of short and sweet. It involved 69 volunteers who kind of combed the state of Rhode Island looking for evidence of breeding and And generating species lists for atlas blocks. And I don't know if you intend to go into more detail later about atlasing and what it entails, but essentially, our entire state for one of these atlases is subdivided into these 25 square kilometer or 10 square mile blocks. And each one of these blocks is surveyed in its entirety for birds. And so, historically, and still today for most states, bird atlases largely revolve around breeding activity. And this is primarily due to the fact that, well, uh, with the exception of Rhode Island, states are large. And so it's difficult to spread effort out over more than just the breeding season in many states, because there are some massive states out there that try to undertake these burn atlas projects, which are essential at establishing baseline data sets for a state that can then be later used to for comparison purposes to see how things change through time and if you want the most robust data set you can get then it would behoove you particularly if you're a large state to really focus all of your effort on the breeding season because uh, understanding how birds are distributed across a state during the breeding season yields a certain amount of implication as to the habitat types in the state what's available because birds for the most part, are pretty habitat specialized. You know, there are some generalists out there, but birds really do tend to distribute themselves across a landscape based on habitat
3: type. So these breeding bird atlases are are capable of, of giving you not only a
2: snapshot of your bird population, but also an understanding of your habitat availability and how healthy those habitats are and how much of each of these habitat types are available for these species. In Rhode Island, we're really fortunate because we're small, and sometimes being small is beneficial because now we are able, in our second iteration of our bird atlas, to undergo the first ever known year-round bird atlas. So we are collecting data from not just the breeding season, but we're also, um, well, we collected, the, the atlas is officially over at this point. But we also collected data for wintering birds and uh, migratory birds, too. So we have an understanding of how the state is used not only for the breeding season, but also during the winter when Rhode Island seems to be fairly birds, sparse in certain areas, you know, the southern coast of Rhode Island is abundant with sea ducks in the winter. And so getting a grasp on just how important our state is for these overwintering species is something we can really flesh out with the data we've collected. And then subsequently, we've done migration atlas work where we've been able to kind of categorize how birds use the state as they move through in migration. And so my role has been as the coordinator for this entire project, all three realms of the Atlas. I've been responsible for creating the Atlas itself, coming up with protocol, finding and recruiting volunteers, and then training them to go out and collect the data, retrieving the data after it's been collected, analyzing it. And then we've just actually finished, put the finishing touches on, writing up, uh the entire report or book on the results of the atlas and it's going to be replete with all of these really great graphs and maps and graphics that we've created from the data that we've
0: generated that's incredible i've actually seen those tabs on the website for the bird atlas of migratory wintering birds it's really cool have you always been interested in birds
2: i have yeah i uh I'm kind of one of those people who've always kind of had this one-track mind, which has been really beneficial because I've never kind of been lost in the woods trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. I was raised in the mountains of Virginia. My dad was a carpenter. He bought this really big farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, Huntley, Virginia. Probably no one's ever heard of that little town. And I had nothing to do growing up but spend all of my time outside. And so we didn't even have exterior walls on our home. So I was always out Doors. even when I was inside, I was technically outside. And so I would spend all my time in the woods and I very, very quickly gravitated towards birds. I just thought that they were, well, they were the most obvious component of the landscape. Birds to this day are very popular because they're so easy to observe and so accessible for everybody. And, and I found that to be the case when I was a kid. And I really glommed on to birds, bird identification, bird behavior. And I was kind of an oddball as an adolescent. I would get off of school and on, the, on a Friday, pack a backpack, and then just go backpacking by myself into uh, the Appalachian Trail off of the back of my property and spend two or three days birding and camping. And that was how I spent the majority of my life as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and I carried that interest with me all through college, and then I took an ornithology course. And when you understand the evolutionary history of the birds and more of the scientific nature of their physiology and how these animals are really just metabolic hot rods that have done such an amazing job of evolving to operate at the height of their physiology and, and radiate to fill the entirety of our planet. I was just hooked even more, you know, and it still so it was always it was always strengthening uh um an ideal that I had, and uh, I got to the point where I could envision no other life than one devoted to studying birds. And so I went on to to do a master's degree. After that, I I took a break from school and went. And I worked on a project as a as the head technician for a red cockaded woodpecker recovery project in North Carolina, where I got to work full time on a, a Marine Corps base and monitor a highly endangered woodpecker population on that marine Corps base. And that was largely work devoted to conservation. So up until that point, I had involved myself with some undergraduate research where I looked at physiological costs of song production and territoriality and really fun questions to ask from a scientific perspective. But when I had this job, it was my first glimpse into conservation. And the bulk of my work was kind of revolving around managing habitat for an endangered species. So we would do prescribed burns. We would remove woods from the longleaf pine forest ecosystem. Um, we would drill cavities for woodpeckers 80 feet up in the tree to make it easier for the woodpeckers to find nesting and roosting sites. And it was just a lot of physical labor and it was really rewarding because we would have a growth rate of about 3% per year. We would oh, wow. see this, this woodpecker population expand because of the work we were doing. And so at that point, I really kind of caught the bug for conservation work and went back to obtain my PhD in, in the area. I worked with toxicology, so how heavy metals, particularly methylmercury, gets into the ecosystem. And then bioaccumulates in fish eating birds and how young birds nestlings uh, are impacted developmentally by being fed a diet that's very high in mercury so i kind of totally shifted gears still researching birds but looking more along the lines of conservation work at that point and i was involved in uh, the semester at sea for five years, where I was able to go around the world and teach students from two hundred and fifty universities um, around the world uh, about ornithology, tropical ornithology. I got involved in coffee production in the tropics and how you can produce a sustainable cup of coffee without destroying, you know, wildlife habitat in the in the form of rainforest. And if you if you grow your um, your coffee
3: varietals in a, in a particular way, then it's better for the birds, it's better for the
2: habitat, and it's better for all of the wildlife in the area. And so I've just been kind of working towards conservation for quite some time. I met my wife when I was down in Virginia. I obtained my PhD from the University of Virginia, and I met her down there, and, and she was a Rhode Islander. And so if I finished my doctorate and she wanted to, to move back home, I had no problem doing so. So I moved up here about 10 years ago, and I started off as an adjunct professor at Roger Williams University and uh, Salve Regina, and I taught conservation biology, ecology, biology, and then I was fortunate enough to to find my way into this role as the coordinator for the Bird Atlas and the rest is history. This is a project I've been working tirelessly on for the last five years
0: now. That is fascinating, and I have so many questions about your life. You wrote them
1: all down. While you were talking. <laughs> or a few keywords so I can remember, yeah.
0: We were actually, just to go back a little ways, Eric and I were just talking this morning about the accessibility of birds because it's often the first exposure to wildlife. And we at the Land Trust have seen such an increase in trail usage and preserve attendance that we're attributing to to birds and people being more connected to the, to the land through their birds. And Eric had this great story where she was just working from home during the quarantine. And just looking at our window at, at a birdhouse or a bird feeder.
1: A bird feeder, yeah. 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 And, and just realizing we have birds at our house, birds that I, I am not a birder and I would like to be, I think, based on the, the, my experience through the pandemic. And I've heard that from other people who all of a sudden have all this time in a, in a location, a solid location, to look out their window or to be outside and sure. to, see, to see birds, you know, where you just probably weren't paying attention to them before. Not you, yeah. where I wasn't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, in your experiences, especially like the semester at sea teaching 250 universities, do you find that's a common experience around the world? That birds are the first exposure to nature? You know, it's funny.
2: Birding and bird tourism, which is basically just money spent in any capacity for birds. So the sector of our tourism that is bird-related runs the gamut from everything from people who go on dedicated birding trips around the world to tick off new species that they've yet to see, all the way to people who go buy birdseed and throw it in their backyard, and that's the extent of their bird watching. And that collective... Industry has been growing by leaps and bounds and it's only been growing more in the last handful of years Um, So it's definitely a phenomenon that seems to be getting more and more popular through time Um, And my take on it is, you know nature You can approach nature in a number of different ways. You can be incredibly scientific about it ask very specific questions about why certain things behave the way that they do, go out, collect data, analyze the data, and then you're really a a, a data scientist. You know, you come up with answers based on a hypothesis or a question you had, and in the intermediate period, you're really focusing on the data that you're collecting. But you can also take more of an artistic slant on nature, if you will, and and think about nature more in the vein of someone like John Muir or Ralph Waldo Emerson, who were scientific and analytical in their, in their mindset, but they had this amazing and, and beautiful appreciation for nature because of the way that it made them feel internally. You know, and so I always say, yes, I'm a scientist. I study birds because A I want to help struggling populations of birds that are primarily struggling because of things we've done. So the habitat that we've destroyed, the climate that we are changing. And I also like to answer some really interesting questions about birds, like where did feathers evolve from? And, and how do birds use their song to attract their mates? And how does territoriality work? You know, it's it's always in my mind that the whole reason I, I became obsessed with birds, and even today, when I look at a bird, when I see a bird, there's no science in my head. It's a feeling. It's a feeling I get there's something magnificent about looking at a bird, the colors, the feathers, the fact that it's the only thing on earth that has feathers, watching a bird flying effortlessly, all of it kind of stirs something in your soul and so for me personally it's it's it is a scientific connection i have with birds but it's also very emotional and so i like in my experience at least to those of people like john Muir, who see a landscape and they feel something deep and emotional this connection they have to nature and i think that that people are just starting to do that more and more. They're starting to look outside of themselves. They're starting to look outside of their own hectic lives. They're noticing these things in their backyard that have been there all along, and they're feeling kind of an emotional connection to them. You know, there there's a certain amount of happiness that you can achieve just by watching, sitting and watching birds. You know, and yes, you can achieve that level of happiness by watching mammals or studying flowers. But it requires more work you've got to go outside and find them you know and whereas birds come to you and you step outside your door and the first thing you hear is likely a bird in song somewhere you know in your backyard or your neighbor's backyard and flying overhead so birds are very accessible and it's that accessibility that i think that people are kind of Really falling in love with the fact that they they have this release from their lives because all of our lives are getting so much more hectic every year. We've got so much t- stuff to deal with, and birds are are release a simple release, something that you can find really easily and spend as much or as little time observing as you want. But in that observation, you're filling your well. You know, you're you're getting something out of that relationship. You're not harming the animal. You're not interacting with the animal unless you're feeding it um and yet you're 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 benefiting from that relationship that you have with this animal and i think that's actually just becoming more and more common you know i lead a lot of bird walks throughout the year and i give a lot of talks on bird biology and evolutionary history and i would say the preponderance of people who take these courses and go on these walks with me they're not scientists they're enthusiasts and they're enthusiasts because they just they think birds are cool. They think <laughs> birds are really cool. And I think that cool factor is what attracts a whole lot of people to birds. And it's just becoming more popular because there are people out there who are sharing who are sharing
1: this gift that they've found with others. And it's, it's catching on in a big way. I think I can totally relate to this story that you're describing because... My background is in marine mammals. That's what I grew up being obsessed with, probably the same way that you were obsessed with birds. And when I left that career, when I started working at the Westerly Land Trust, I vividly remember... Seeing a hawk and thinking, Hey, I can like birds now. And it's not that I wasn't able to like birds before, but all of a sudden I had moved into the terrestrial realm and there's so much more accessible It's you know, um, than marine mammals. It's, I think it was something that I hadn't considered before. And now here I am where I can look out my window or go outside and, and see these animals that I really feel, like you said, I have an emotional attachment or i'm drawn to them in a different way than i had ever been before so i think it speaks a lot to the way your brain works too you know like i said there's a spectrum
2: of of bird enthusiasts out there and there are people who will go and they will find birds and they will see these common birds enough to actually get bored with them Mm -hmm. and they want to see new species and they they go on this hunt you know, and for them, the excitement is in the hunt to find new species, to ch- check them off the list and find as much as they possibly can. But, you know, at, at the other end of that spectrum are, are people like myself, where I can watch, I can go for a walk in my neighborhood with a pair of binoculars and look at cardinals and chickadees all day long, even though I've seen countless millions of both of those, and I've banded hundreds, if not thousands, of both of those species. So I've held them in my hands, and yet still, it's them and their interaction with the world around them and their behavior towards one another and that still fascinates me. You can live 20 lives and still not learn all that there is to be taught by a black cat chickadee. It's that level of interest that piques my soul when I go outside. And so I, I am of the mindset that birds regardless of how rare they are or how beautiful they are, all have a really, really cool story to tell because every single one of the 10,000 species of birds on this planet are here because they figured it out. They've, over a 160 million year evolutionary history, they figured out how to survive in a given environment, how to specialize on a given food, how to avoid predators, how to nest successfully. And that evolutionary... Uh, kind of path that they have walked or flown is (laughs) something that fascinates me to the to the point where i will never tire of seeing the most common backyard species because i still feel like they're teaching me so much
0: about myself Mm -hmm. yeah i've never actually heard of a black capped chickadee so already learning something (laughs) you'll have to go research it i (laughs) will I want to point out that just in the last five minutes, you both have used the word obsessed just so <laughs> casually, and I love it. I love the enthusiasm. We definitely, more of that. People embrace your nature obsessions because it's great.
1: Yeah. What do you, how do you think, kind of along those lines? I mean, given that you grew up basically outside, you were probably always a conservationist. I know you said that you kind of, you learned it later on when you were studying it from a technical point of view in a school, but what what kind of changes have you made in the way that you live your life, or how do you live your life differently because of your job? Not necessarily how do you do your job differently, but your day-to-day, everyday life, what decisions do you make based on your conservation-mindedness? Sure,
2: yeah, I mean... You know, what you're referring to is, is, is that I, in a way, have always been a conservationist at heart and what kind of had, I had that light bulb moment when I saw the fruits of conservation efforts, you know, it was all it was always the case that I was doing things like I've been a vegetarian for 27 years. Um, And that was a decision that I made very young in life because I just simply didn't want to cause harm to animals, any animal. I didn't care what it was. I I didn't feel the need to do it. I felt like there were plenty of legumes and and leafy green vegetables and things to get me by happily and healthily without having to cause harm to any animals. And I've always been a recycler and I pushed these kind of ideals on my family and friends as well. But you don't ever see the fruits of those things you know you know inherently that you're doing a good thing by recycling and you know inherently that you're doing a good thing for humanity and climate change and animal welfare by being a vegetarian but you don't see the impact right you can eat vegetables your entire life but you can you'll never see the the 2500 cattle that you've that you've saved by not eating meat however when I was out drilling cavities for woodpeckers, and I would put the drill away and climb 80 feet down the tree, break down the ladder, and then within that time, look up and see a woodpecker fly up to the hole that I just drilled and check it out. You it were it's it was immediate gratification. You know, it was like wow. So this is conservation work, conservation-minded work, and I can immediately see that it's having an impact on these wildlife populations. So there was a. Uh, there was this, this bridge that was made very, very strongly for me. That was just a form of encouragement. It was, you know, you can live your life by doing things that are conservation minded. And some of those things that I make sure that I do are recycle, uh, purchase bird certified bird friendly coffee. That's been certified by the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Institute. So, so I know when I drink that cup of coffee, that no rainforests were chopped down to produce that coffee you know, drive fuel-efficient vehicles, uh, try to be as conservation-minded as I can in terms of my lawn care so I don't rake all the leaves away when I know that bees and other pollinators are going to be using that uh, leaf litter. And the Carolina wrens in my backyard are going to be foraging in that leaf litter if I just leave it be. And so I know now, based on the work that I had done with the red cockaded woodpeckers, and then subsequently for my PhD and then during this atlas, I know that I'm having the impact, even though I don't see it. I know from a uh, from a factual standpoint that I am doing something that is having a measurable impact, and I do believe in the power of one. I very much believe in the power of one. You know, I think that it would be great if everyone would do some of the things that we know to be really important from a conservation perspective. It would be wonderful if everybody decided to cut back their meat consumption to one day a week, or Make sure that when they drink a cup of coffee, it was certified bird friendly and and not Folgers or Maxwell's House, for example. I inherently know these things, but I also believe that regardless of whether other people do it or not, by me not doing it, by me not consuming these products and making sure I make certain choices in my life, I am having a measurable impact, particularly when there is some market influence that an American consumer has. You know, and I can give you a really quick example of that pertaining to the bird friendly coffee varietals. There are very little market mechanisms in place to protect coffee producers who make coffee in a sustainable fashion. You know, they don't get as much money for their coffee when it's brought to market as these huge conglomerate coffee producers do and so it's so easy for you to go to the grocery store and just grab a bag of cheap coffee off of your your shelf but if you go to your local coffee producer or coffee roaster and you go through their varietals and you select the bag that is certified bird friendly that's then a bag that they're going to have to order more of you know and so you keep this market alive and so trickling down that chain somewhere is the producer of that coffee and he or she and their family are getting paid for the coffee that is being produced on their farm. And that to me is very important. That gives them, uh, impetus to continue doing what they're doing. And the hope is obviously that that demand will build and that this will become
3: more of a commonly produced good than it is now. Yeah. Um,
0: I, I remember just go back a little bit again that you were talking about all of your projects. Like they seem so specific. And I think that's, that's really cool because no matter how small some effect is, whether that be, like, your, like the power of one, one person impacting um, or having a better yard because they're leaving the, the leaves out, not using chemicals, everything is connected. So, like, building one home for these woodpeckers is going to have lasting impacts around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, so we live in a world of
2: globalization, and one of the things that I always impress upon my students when I teach a conservation course is you don't think about the vast majority of things that you do. And I'm guilty of that too, I'm not saying you don't think, like, I don't, we don't think collectively about the impacts we have and how far-reaching they are, you know, and so if you sit down to a dinner and that dinner consists of a piece of salmon, followed up by a piece of chocolate cake and a cup of coffee. That's a very common meal. People go to restaurants and they order that kind of stuff all the time. But the salmon probably came from either a farm, a fish farm somewhere, or if it was wild caught, it came from a population of wild salmon thousands of miles away from you that's either being fished sustainably or possibly not. And then that piece of cake is made with cocoa, with chocolate. And that chocolate's either coming from the American tropics, or it's coming from the African tropics. And then that cup of coffee is being brewed from beans that were shipped thousands of miles, again, from either Africa or, or Central America, South America, to the restaurant for you to enjoy uh, after your meal. And so there is a very large reach to so much that we do that many people don't even give a second thought to. And so you can have measurable impacts that will ripple on a global scale if you do things in a more sustainable manner. And so I try to impress upon people that when you make decisions, make them as informed consumers. And too often what we'll do is we won't pay attention to um, the decisions we're making and we will give them, we won't even give them a second thought. You know, my daughter is actually a vegetarian now. And it was largely because she, you know, I insisted that she educate herself about what it is that she was eating when, when we sat down to eat and she would eat a piece of meat and she would ask how the meat came to be on her plate. And then I would in would, you know, no uncertain terms inform her about how it was likely that that meat came to be on her plate and she was, She was just taken aback by it to the point where she's like, "Well, I don't want to be a part of that," you know. And so I do think.
1: How old is your daughter? Sorry to interrupt you. How old is she? She's twelve. Okay, I just wanted to understand because I love, and I'm sorry to interrupt your story, but I love that you are. I'm assuming being very honest with your daughter of of the chain because. It is important for people to understand that. It is important to understand you don't just go to the grocery store and buy a pack of chicken. It came from somewhere else. And, and so I, I really I admire that.
2: That's kind of always been my tactic. I don't like the practice that many people engage in of pulling the wool over their own eyes. You know, of saying, I know bad things happen, but I don't want to think about it. I just want to eat my piece of chicken or whatever. And so to me, that's not how change is made. You know, change doesn't come from ignoring something. You've got to face it head-on you've got to recognize what the shortcomings of our society are and only then are you going to be able to make some kind of measurable impact you know even something as small as going to your fishmonger and asking questions about where did this fish come from how is it fished all of which is information they should have at their
3: fingertips when fish show up at their store it should be marked with
2: how it was caught the form of fishing practices that were used to collect
3: that fish sample, that to collect that fish fillet. Where in the world that fish came
2: from, and then just going the next logical step of of demanding food that's been sustainably caught using sustainable methods, uh, relatively local to you, so that it's not being shipped frozen. You know, a lot of people don't understand, and this is, we're way off topic when it comes to birds here, but they don't understand that a lot of the fish caught right here in the Western Atlantic is then shipped overseas to Asia where it's processed and frozen and then shipped back to the United States where it is sold and consumed. So there are so many steps in all of these processes that are easy to learn about. And, and just most people don't take the time to learn them. So my big thing with education is education. Like, you know, this is from day one, we're going to illuminate all of these practices and hopefully the lasting impact will be one that that is on on you incumbent on you to make make a decision about your consumption practices. You know, and I do rely heavily on technology. I I have all of my students take their phones out and we download apps because there is a plethora of great apps out there that can be used to determine the sustainability of things that we consume all the time. You can calculate your carbon footprints uh, from things you do. You can determine whether or not the fish you're gonna buy that's on the menu at a restaurant is a fish that is in danger of extinction because it's being overfished uh, or has an abnormally high concentration of mercury in its tissues. So these are all Tools that are making it easier and easier and easier every year to become a conscious consumer, you know, and so if the the tools are there, people should be using them, particularly if they are people who do care. And I think that all of these people, even people who just put up bird feeders in their backyards, you know. Pull us back to birds now. All well, <laughs> well, people who just put up a feeder in their backyard and spend their days looking out their window at a bird and appreciating that bird. Hopefully you can start to draw these pair, these lines from the bird in their backyard to the seed they're using, on and on down the consumption chain to the point where they can make very simple adjustments, small, not uncomfortable things that they can do in their day to day lives that end up having more of a measurable and global impact than they are having now.
1: I think one thing that has been a common theme of the podcast that we have recorded, the episodes that we have recorded to date, is local, staying local. Mm-hmm. And you know, we heard it with Stephanie, our flower farmer, right outside of our offices. We talked about um, we talked about it with the produce farmer cassidy i mean it just seems and now we're talking about it again with you is that there is an overarching theme of the importance of purchasing or consuming local products i just wanted to point that out yeah
0: purchasing power again mm-hmm. it's the individual actions that you can take i've used the apps to things like the monterey bay seafood watch before i was a vegetarian i would be at the seafood counter or a restaurant i would ask the the seafood clerk or the waiter or waitress. If they knew where that, where it was from, if it was farmed, it was wild caught. If I didn't like the answer or if they didn't know, yeah, I would get some, I'd be like, oh, I'll get the pasta dish instead, I guess. <laughs> they're,
2: they're not that uncomfortable concessions to have to make, you know, it's, uh people can be put out pretty easily, unfortunately. And so we have to just change our mentality a little bit and be okay with not ordering something that no one at the restaurant seems to know where it even came from. Well, is that really something you want to eat anyway? You know, there's a lot of mislabeling that even goes on, particularly with fish, for example, where you might be seeing something on a menu that isn't actually the species it claims that it is. So knowledge is power, you know, and and so I think that There's a huge movement in that direction, but there's still quite a distance that we have to go. And in terms of local, the power of consuming locally produced goods, I think that's very, very important. And it's not not to say that you shouldn't ever consume something that's not local. Like, I can't live a day without drinking seven or eight cups of coffee. You know, I'm just, I'm a coffee addict and I have been my entire life. And so... There's no such thing as locally produced coffee. You can't
3: grow <laughs> coffee in Rhode Island.
2: It's a tropical plant, but you can do it in a very, you know, sustainable way—a a very, a very uh, conservative-focused way. Um, you just have to do a little bit of reading and, and and studying in order to figure out how to do it. But once you've done that, it, it it's very, very easy. It's quite
0: easy to do. Definitely, and just to throw it out there, I also always thought it was weird that there are there's fair trade brands that certify that the farmers or owners of the business are being paid appropriately. I always thought that was weird that we have to feel good about that. Like, going out of our way to purchase something that guarantees a <laughs> livable wage for the um, producer.
1: <laughs>
0: anyway. Um, I agree. I yeah. agree. I, you, you would
2: think that that would
1: just be a given. But yep. unfortunately, it is not. I know. Agree.
0: So, yeah, to bring it back to birds, have you noticed with the bird atlas, um, the last one was in the 80s, I think? Have you noticed a change in migratory patterns or the permanent residence of birds in Rhode Island due to climate change? We have, and
2: unfortunately, because the first atlas, which was done over 30 years ago, only looked at the breeding season, the only thing we can look at for change analysis is the breeding season now. We don't, we didn't do any data collection during the winter or the migratory periods in our first round atlas. So all of the data that we collected on how birds utilize Rhode Island for the winter and subsequently how they use it during periods of migration. That's all our first baseline data set that we've accumulated. So hopefully, subsequent bird atlases that are done in Rhode Island will all continue collecting data during both winter and migration. And then we can see how things change during those times of the year. But during the breeding season, we've absolutely seen quite a bit of change. The, the majority of, of change that we've seen comes in the form of how our habitats have changed through time. But there are some very obvious climate change driven changes that have occurred as well in some of our avifauna. So I'll give you a few examples.
0: Some of the you what? Know, some of the, the what fauna? Avifauna, fauna.
2: Avi fauna. So oh, it's okay. just another way of saying bird life. Okay. I, know, I prefer avifauna. I think it sounds, it's, it's got a good ring to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, hundreds of years ago, Rhode Island had a massive farming industry. You know, we had a lot more agriculture. We had a lot more grassland and agricultural field habitat throughout the state. And then slowly but surely kind of agriculture in this country shifted towards the Midwest. And as it did so, all of these small farms dotting the landscape in Rhode Island disappeared. But the, the land itself was there, but not maintained anymore as a grassland habitat. So beginning quite a while ago, we had species that were associated with grassland and open habitats that began to dwindle in the state of rhode island and by the time we conducted our first breeding atlas we saw that uh, quite a few of these grassland birds like eastern meadowlark and bobolink savannah sparrow they were kind of dropping at a pretty precipitous rate in the state and that was largely because of the fact that the grassland habitat the open habitats were no longer available to them and had all begun the natural state of succession back into a mature forest. So you know if you're familiar with the idea of succession, it's that habitats will success through a series of stages back into what's referred to as a climax community or a, a mature forest. We never actually get to a final habitat type because things are always changing. But um these grassy habitats these big fields all over time they will become uh rural which means they will have more shrublands kind of shrub uh, species move in and a grassy habitat becomes a shrubby habitat and then some young saplings will come in and you'll start to go from that shrub habitat into a young forest and then young forest into a mature forest and so all of these species that rely heavily on big open grass fields have become virtually non-existent in Rhode Island. So we've, we've seen very precipitous declines in so many of these species. However, on the other end of that spectrum, we now have a lot of really mature forests in our state relative to what was available 30, 40, 50 years ago. And now we're seeing huge increases in populations of birds that rely on mature forests. So Pileated woodpeckers, which are those really big woodpecker species, are now ubiquitous in Rhode Island, particularly in the western parts of the state. And that's because there's more mature forest habitat for them. Our forests have matured through time, and now the availability of habitat is greater. And so these species are benefiting as a result. So we've seen losses and we've seen gains Largely due to changing habitats in the state of Rhode Island, but there have been some instances in which we believe climate change is driving change as well. So uh, the Carolina wren, which is a traditionally southern species, has been pushing its way northeast for quite some time. And 30 years ago in our first round atlas, we had Carolina wrens in the state, but very, very few of them and they would come they would breed they would attempt to stay throughout the year because they're year-round territory holders so these little tiny birds sit on a territory throughout the year but a harsh rhode island winter would decimate local populations you know these are birds that rely on foraging on the ground for most of their food resources and they're insectivorous so they're looking for winter active insects which is very difficult to find when the temperature stays low for long periods Or when we get big snowstorms that leave the ground completely unexposed to the point where these birds that rely on foraging on the ground have no foraging habitat available to them. So we would get these big pulses of Carolina wrens moving into the state and then getting knocked back. However, now they've progressed to the point where the average Rhode Island winter is warm enough that they've done really well. Now they're found throughout the entire state. They're breeding everywhere to include the northwest corner up in Foster area. You know, cool. So here's an example of a species that seems to be doing really well and largely
0: that success be owed to a warming climate more so than any other one factor. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that warmer climates up here will bring up more insects as well and so birds that eat that specific insect will follow it up here. Like, at Avondale, we maintain Avondale as best we can as a grassland. But we have seen a dusky-winged moth, which isn't supposed to be found around here, but its territory has moved up more north as the climate warms. So, I wonder if if specific bird species would be following their prey
3: north as well. Yeah, well, that's what the predictions all state, that what we're likely to see over the next 50 to 100 years for most bird populations is... What's commonly referred to as a range
2: shift, you know, and so these birds that are traditionally of the mid-Atlantic will be pushing their way north because the warmer temperatures will cause flowering plants and insect populations to also move north. So they'll move north tracking these resources. And so everything shifts northward. And so the question becomes: well, what happens to these birds that are Uh, Maybe not Rhode Island birds because they still have north to move as well. I mean, the projections show that a lot of the bird species we see here now are likely to become far more common in northern New England, southern Canada, and then eventually all the way into northern Canada within the next 50 to 100 years. But what happens to these boreal species, these arctic species that already live in the far north? Where are they going to go? You know, they can't go any further north than they already are. So it's believing that we're going to pinch a lot of these species in these northern regions of the planet uh, to areas where it's inhospitable. They're not able to procure the resources that they require to meet their physiologic demands. And that's when we're going to see full scale uh, extinctions of species because they're just simply put won't be anywhere for their, anywhere for them to go. Mm-hmm.
3: So it's very, very likely that we will see more and more southern species pushing north into Rhode Island. And fewer and fewer of the birds that we historically have seen in our state will stay here. They'll just keep moving north, tracking these warming temperatures and resources. And so I think the projections are, and and, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think they are within the next 50 years, our average uh, summer Day in Rhode Island is going to be similar to
2: what the average Atlanta, Georgia summer day is now in terms of temperature and um, humidity. So
1: I moved you know, here from I, Atlanta. I don't want to go back to that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, from Virginia. You know, it's hot and humid, and um, that's likely what we can expect here in Rhode Island in the next fifty years or so. Uh, just, funny. just based
0: on the way things have been progressing. I have a question just for my own curiosity. So, Arctic birds, they. Winter down here, but why? Or is it just because the winter in the Arctic becomes too harsh for them, so they come down to a, a climate that's like an environment that's more similar part. to them? Yeah, you know,
2: um, bird migration in its infancy began because, because the tropics were always relatively warm and unglaciated, and all the birds and wi- all their wildlife species were all kind of compressed in this band around the center of the planet, and competition was really high, for food for nesting sites predation was very high so that relatively few nestlings made it out of the nest alive and then as glaciers began to retreat both north and south birds would move north and south to find new habitats that weren't as congested so they didn't have to deal with competition Uh, they didn't have to deal with predation rates as high But it it was costly for them, clearly, because they had to then move hundreds, if not thousands of miles every year to gain access to these areas. Because the further north they went, the fewer competitors there were, the more resources they had to themselves, and the more likely it was that uh, they would find themselves in a habitat that was light for longer, allowing them to crank out more nestlings successfully. You know, and so that kind of happened to the point where birds will migrate all the way to the poles. I mean, they'll go all the way to the Arctic regions during the Arctic summer because it's light 24 hours a day. Insect and flower densities are very, very high, so there's a lot of food resource available to them. Competition's very low because when you get up to the Arctic, these birds can really spread out, become territorial, and not have to worry about as, as stiff competition for these resources. And predation is also significantly lower in these areas as well. But then. In the winters, they find themselves in a habitat that is far too harsh to survive over the course of the winter. You know, it becomes dark 24 hours a day, oftentimes snow and ice covered throughout the day, um, resources drop altogether. There are a large number of birds that head up to the Arctic to take advantage of insects, which all but disappear in an Arctic winter. And so they're forced south because of the cold conditions and the lack of resources. So they have to move south because if they stay north, they wouldn't be able to meet their own metabolic demands during the non-breeding season of just sustenance,
3: of just sustaining, of ma- self-maintenance, basically. That's
1: amazing. You've convinced me birds are cool.
0: Birds aren't cool. <laughs> like. So, uh, do you have anything, Eric? No,
1: I mean, I could, I could listen to you talk about birds all day long. And yeah. I would love to do that, but I know you have you a like lot to talk of... Up, I, I, <laughs> I know. I know you've got things to do. You've got things to get back to, so...
0: I know. We've taken up so much of your time, but I have one more question. Uh-huh. Are sure. are birds today just modern dinosaurs?
2: Modern dinosaurs. Yes, absolutely. They are. You know, we have just this growing body of evidence. That used to be a question. That used to be something, you, a point you could argue. Uh, there is nobody out there in the scientific community... Arguing that birds did not evolve from this group of theropod feathered dinosaurs, you know, and we even know now that tyrannosaurus rex, velociraptors, all were likely feathered, you know, and and the uh, the likelihood is that those feathers first evolved for thermal regulation to uh, keep dinosaurs warm in otherwise cool climates, or they evolved for sexual uh, attraction so that males could use brightly colored feathers to attract females. And they were not evolved initially for flight, but it was through this 160 million year evolutionary history that those feathers changed to serve different endpoints. And obviously the biggest one for birds was flight, was the ability to become mobile. You know, the, the evidence is strong, supported by the, by the fossil record to show that modern birds came from a group of dinosaurs that just simply didn't go extinct. It just changed.
1: Birds are winged. Miniature dinosaurs. And That's they what, are flying around our planet still. <laughs> That's my son, my six-year-old son's favorite fact right now. <laughs> oh, okay. It's my favorite fact, too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, are, do you have any? Do you have a website that you want to share with everyone or social media handles? So like our, our
2: bird atlas, uh, like I said, unfortunately, is not any longer collecting data in the field. We do have a website. It's ribirdatlas.com. And it, it does a fairly decent job of outlining the Atlas, so anybody who was interested in reading up on the Atlas, what it's about, what the goals are, can go to that website and, and read it. But we are no longer recruiting volunteers or training volunteers, so at this point we're getting the book off to a publisher, which will hopefully be published soon uh, in the form of a big, beefy, kind of coffee table-sized book. And then we will have a series of online tools available so that land trusts like Westerly Land Trusts will be able to go on to the website and use these tools to generate lists of species found on their parcels, for example. So there will be lots and lots of online tools available uh, that people will want to check out. Um, but in the meantime, if they wanted to go to RIBirdAtlas.com and read up on the project, that, that's something they could do.
1: Awesome. For the next 60 seconds... Please enjoy this nature mindfulness activity with sounds from Avondale Farm Preserve.
0: Well, if we can just take up another five minutes of your time, Um, because we end each episode with a westerly interest fun fact and a conservation tip, which is actually going to go super quick because we already touched on both of them. So the fun fact was um just you can find birds in our properties, especially I was going to mention Avondale being the grassland. We do have Bobble Link there or they've been seen there. Right now, I heard that there are a lot of bluebirds. That's exciting. Yeah, so birds are everywhere. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the conservation tip was actually to bring up meatless Mondays. It's a growing trend that's been catching on, just to reduce your meat consumption, reduce your carbon footprint that way, reduce the impact of industrial agriculture. But we talked about that, so yeah, we are on track. Yeah, that's fantastic. We did. We knocked it all out of the park. I
1: would say. We did. Thank you so much for talking to us. We really appreciate You're you taking very the time. welcome. It's my pleasure taking the time. I I feel like I learned a lot, and I, I got to go get a pair of binoculars now. Yeah, definitely.
0: This whole time we're in front of a window, and we I don't know if you've watched us just our eyes flick out the window because there's been so many birds flying past. And we're just like, oh, wildlife. Wow,
1: we have a <laughs> pair of walks <laughs> that we've been watching the past couple of weeks. So, well, pour yourself a
0: cup of bird-friendly coffee. Go
2: stand by the window
1: That's and nice. watch. It. Sounds like a great way to spend the afternoon. I think we'll do that.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much.
3: We hope to thank talk you to guys. you again soon. Enjoy the rest of your day. You, you too. too. Have a good one. Okay. Bye. Bye. Right, you too. Bye bye. I'm going to keep that in. That's a new intro. Okay. <laughs> I didn't read that one before. Thank you to Dr. Charles Clarkson for speaking with
0: us. And thank you for listening to Voices of the Land. We could not do this without your support. Look us up on Facebook and Instagram or at westerlylandtrust.org for more information on our work.
1: Also, check out the Trails app. Just search Westerly Land Trust in the App Store for trail maps, pictures, and message boards. And if you would like to support us in other ways, you can become a Land Trust member on our website. Again, that's westerlylandtrust.org.
0: Thank you again and tune in next month.
1: Thank you for listening to Voices of the Land. Your continued support helps us preserve and podcast the places you cherish. Feel free to rate and subscribe to this podcast to help others find it.
0: And together, we can help everyone feel more connected to our natural world.